Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast, proudly sponsored by Book People Gift Cards. A Book People Gift Card is the perfect gift for readers of all ages. Simply order your gift card online at bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Redeem in any one of over 500 bookshops across Australia. Visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. I don't feel any emotion when I think of my mother's death. I have imagined the act, what it required to do it, but I imagine it as one sees a scene in a film. It seems to hold no special significance for me. Perhaps by the time she killed herself, I was already quite far away. In any case, when I touch the area around that day, I can feel only callous. The day opens for me at about 3.30 p.m. This must be the time because I have just left the school grounds and I'm looking down the street towards our house. The port is in my right hand. We've only lived here for a year or two, having moved from the country. All of us, in our different ways, struggle against suburban life like trapped birds. I loathe the Moreton Bay beaches just a half mile from our house. The water is waveless and opaque, and it contains jellyfish. There are mangrove swamps and moaning casuarina forests. The beaches are narrow and lonely. I hate swimming in the shark enclosure with the kids from school because my mother has bought me transparent speedos and you can see my bottom through them when they are wet. Summer afternoon, cotton frock. Right hand clasping handle of school port. I'm standing still looking down the street to our house, which is different from all the other houses. Our house is two-storey with patios built by an Italian. My mother says it's vulgar. Inside the house, every room is filled with thick, dark misery, even though there is plenty of suburban light pouring through the Venetian blinds. My mother, unable to get out of bed one day, told me God had come to her through the Venetians and held her hand. Greg Hamilton, who passes me notes in school, reckons the house is unlucky. Robin Davidson's first book, Tracks, was the consequence of an incredible journey across 1,700 miles of Australian desert, accompanied by a dog and four camels. Since then, Robin has travelled extensively, including a period in the early 1990s when she lived and travelled with nomads in northwest India. Robin is the author of several fiction and non-fiction books, including Travelling Light, Desert Places, Ancestors and No Fixed Address. But today I'm talking to Robin Davidson about her new book, Unfinished Woman. Robin Davidson, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you, Greg. Good to be here. I've been trying to write about my mother for years. That's what you write? Why was that so difficult? What were the obstacles to writing about your mother? Everything. (laughs) Look, there was tremendous inner resistance. I didn't want to write about her. I certainly didn't want to write about myself. I wasn't interested in the past. I wasn't interested in my story, my past, my history. But also I understood that memoir is such a a difficult form. It's a morally difficult form apart from anything else. There wasn't much of my mother left 
in, in the literal sense, in other words, there were no letters, no diaries, there was nothing extant of her. But there was also not a great deal left in my own memory. I knew that in writing about her, I, I risked burying other people's interpretations, other people's stories. So there was, it felt to me like there was this huge moral weight on me. Um, but it also felt to me that I had a duty to write about my mother, that she had been expunged from the world, she'd been forgotten, she'd been um, spoken of badly, and it was as if she'd sort of come back to imprecate me to write, to, to sort of correct the imbalance. But all of that made for a very tricky set of beginnings. I've thrown away at least 90% of this book and it's taken 25 years to to pull together and to feel that I have honoured my mother but also been truthful to the difficulties of doing it. So when you finally decided to sit down and write, if that was the case, did you think you were writing a biography, an autobiography or something else altogether? Look, initially it was simply writing bits and pieces as a way of trying to make sense of what was happening to me. And essentially what was happening was having been completely uninterested in the past and thinking that I had very few memories and indeed not being interested in looking at those memories. As I approached the time at which she died, which was sort of mid to late 40s, I would get these sudden flickerings of memory and they were very much coded to music. So I'd suddenly be ambushed by hearing some old song from the 50s. And it was as if those pieces of music, musical memory, threw light onto a landscape and I'd see what was around it. So suddenly I realised that I actually had quite a lot of memory. I'd just never bothered to pull it up. So I was writing bits and pieces, thinking that I might write about her, trying to sort of make sense of what was going on. But everything I wrote didn't quite feel right or it felt too contrived. Um, So as I said before, a lot of it just went in the bin. And also at that time in my life, I was traveling a hell of a lot and very restless, um, sort of living between three countries, commuting between India and London. Um, So, you know, I might spend three months in one place and write a bit, then disappear for a year and come back and look at what I'd written and think, oh, I don't hardly remember writing that. So it was also confounded and made more complex by the complexity of the way I was living. There's a moment in your book where you reflect on your first book, Tracks. You speak of this thing called a fictional me uh, and that that account of that epic journey was in some way deceiving. Why do you look at it that way? What is this notion of a fictional me? Well, all writing, uh, all um, first-person writing inevitably involves a fictional self because what you are doing is picking and choosing from 
the stuff that's in your mind and you're putting it down, you're leaving things out, you're emphasising some things, you're, in other words, you're doing an editorial process. In the case of writing a book, what a book requires is a structure, a rhythm, it needs to feel coherent. So, of course, what I'm trying to say is that the process of writing itself involves willy-nilly a kind of fictional narrator. The story of going across Australia, there's no lies in the book, there's not a single lie, but it is not the journey itself. It is a reflection of the journey. It is one version of the journey. You could write 10,000 versions of tracks and they would all be true, but they would not be the journey. And that fictionalising of the self is part of that process, part of the process of making a character that is yourself and that is true to yourself but is not yourself. How could it possibly be me? It's an artefact. A book is an artefact and the, and the person narrating that book, however truthful it is, is still an artefact. You also write about the instability of memory. It seems to me from what you've said that somehow your memories might be compromised by the act of writing about them. I wonder about that. I mean, I can't gauge how other people call up their memory, how they use their memory. But I know for me, memory is not at all linear. It's more like this dark landscape and every now and then a spotlight falls on that dark landscape and something is enacted in that spotlight and that is a memory. And right next to that spotlight, which might occur in 1955, is a spotlight right next to it that might occur in 2010. And how those are related is quite mysterious. The whole thing is very bloody mysterious. Um, And I think what the mind does, it's like, for me anyway, the memories are like these seeds. They're encapsulated and something triggers them to open or to bloom, and there you have a memory. It's like light suddenly appearing. And what the mind struggles to do then is to make a story to fit those things together into some sort of coherence, to give the illusion of linearity, but actually it's not linear. I've tried to write the book as a reflection of that process, so it's not a linear structure. Your home life seems to have been a fairly hostile environment. There's this complex relationship between you, your mother, and your older sister, and you talk about favouritism. Look, I don't like talking about this very much. I mean, I've said what is necessary to say in the book, um, and I don't want to elaborate on it. Um that there was, I think, a sibling rivalry um, that was probably never addressed correctly or properly and that that has led to a sense of injustice perhaps. But, you know, that's my sister's story and it wouldn't be fair or right of me to assume that I can elaborate on that story. I've referred to it in the book insofar as it 
has affected my life. But what I would also say is that my memory of my childhood, of those first eight years, is of absolute joy, the joy of childhood, the joy of being in the world and seeing the world so fresh and so new and so exquisite and so full of wonder. So no, I mean, my sense of my early childhood, um, when I think of it, I think of pleasure, really, although it was very solitary. We often speak of catastrophic events as rippling through our lives. Do you think of your mother's suicide in those terms? Those consequences play out in my life in a billion ways. But, of course, it's also not the only factor. And I think often people are too deterministic about, you know, you have a a catastrophic event in your childhood, ergo, you're screwed up in later life. It's really not like that. Or I don't think it's like that. Um, And the choices I've made are no doubt influenced in countless ways by my mother, by my father, by my sister, by genetics, by chance, by who knows what factors. I wouldn't say that my mother's death is even the determining factor in my life. It's a big one for sure. And what I've made of it and her suicide is one thing that has shaped my life. Let's go back one more generation. And I ask this question because I realise this book can at times be funny too. I hope so. People forget that it's got jokes. So let's go back to the generation of your grandmother. What a curious woman. You write about her. My grandmother hated sex and my father. I don't think I've ever contemplated my grandmother's sex life. Well, this is the thing. Children understand things without having any words for them. This is as if families create an atmosphere and children interpret that atmosphere very cleverly and very clearly without any language. So the word sex, I swear to you, would never have been spoken in our family. But one gets a sense of how these deeply important things structure the dynamics of a family. And all of us knew that Nana, in other words, my mother's mother, was a nightmare. She was a bad mother-in-law. She was a narcissistic mother. Who knows who she was, really? I think a very difficult woman, disturbed, possibly, frightened, possibly. Uh, One clue that I got later was a relative saying that she treated her daughter, my mother, more like a sister than like a daughter. So that would mean a kind of slightly unhealthy, narcissistic relationship. But who knows? I mean, she may have been a saint. We can't know. So what I'm writing there is from the atmosphere that a child absorbs. Everything about this book shouts nomad. You lived in many different homes as a child. You lived on the streets and later set out on a 1,700-mile journey as a 27-year-old. This notion of moving on or of being constantly on the move, is it in your nature? Is it a product of your early experience? Or do you simply have trouble standing still? I think it's all three, really. Well, I'm intensely curious. I am 
driven by curiosity. I mean, it's one reason why I would never suicide. It's just I always want to know what's going to happen next, no matter what it is. So there's that. And whether that's genetic, whether I've picked it up, whether it's nature or nurture, I have no idea. I have no way of knowing. But it's certainly been a tremendous um, fuel for me, and I'm very grateful to it. I am interested in nomadic cultures because it seems to me that the principal difference between nomadic cultures and cultures that are rooted or agricultural is that nomads have to value knowledge above the accumulation of goods and they have to be diplomats because they're constantly traveling through foreign places and dealing with difference so they have to have a pretty astute knowledge of how humans work other humans difference i suppose you're right that the other fuel for me has been some sort of psychic running from the past i suppose um if so it's it's done me a lot of good are you the kind of person who manages to find a home wherever you go? Do you feel at home in these different places? Yes and no. Again, it's so hard to answer these questions because I struggle very hard to be at home everywhere. That is my ideal. It's um, it's a moral and a philosophical and an emotional ideal. But, of course, ideals are ideals and then there's real life. So, yes, my attempt is to be inside the frame looking out rather than just being a visitor. And there's always degrees to which one can do that. But I think the great value of immersing yourself in other cultures is to test the value of what you carry as a bias or a belief system. Um, And that's very valuable, although it can be uncomfortable because you're never quite... Sure, you can't really, it must be very comfortable to hold on to belief systems and not have them challenged. Your book begins and ends with ruminations on your mother. It seems there's no resolution. Can there be a resolution here? Does there need to be resolution? No, I think it's a delusion to think there's a resolution. There are attempts at understanding attempts at understanding your own psyche, the world that you're in, the people who have affected you, um, and understanding them is the same as saying to love them because it's it's not about judgment, it's about understanding. And I think the great thing for me, having done this work of memory, is not that I got my mother back. She's gone forever. I'll never have her back. I mean, I'll never have who she was. There's simply not enough left. But I think what I have understood is that we really liked each other. She was a good enough mother. Um, So I'm grateful for that, to to have come to that realisation. And that's enough for me. Robin Davidson, thanks so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks so much, Greg. I've been talking to Robin Davidson about her new book, Unfinished Woman. 
It's published by Bloomsbury, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People gift card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.